Mark 6, uh, 1 through 13. Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? Then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary, brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Then Jesus told him, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own town and among his relatives and his own family. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Then Jesus went from village to village teaching the people, and he called his 12 disciples together and began sending them out two by two, giving them authority to cast out evil spirits. He told them not to take anything for their journey except a walking stick. No food, no traveling bag, no money. He allowed them to wear sandals, but not to take a change of clothes. Wherever you go, he said, stay in the same house until you leave town. But if any place refuses to welcome you or listen to you, Shake its dust from your feet as you leave to show that you have abandoned those people to their fate. So the disciples went out, telling everyone they met to repent of their sins and turn to God. And they cast out many demons and healed many sick people, anointing them with olive oil. This is God's word. Good morning. It's, uh, it's good to be here with you again over YouTube. Uh, if you were not able to be with us last week uh, in the park, that's a bummer. It was a good time, good turnout, and uh, um, it was really good to see everybody that we haven't seen in so long. Um, we are looking for, um, looking to do that again, and I'm asking that you join us, join the elders in praying for wisdom and creative ways to bring us together as a church community. Uh, in this season. So just join us as we are trying to find ways to do that. Okay, so let's, let's jump into our text. Uh, as we're moving through the book of Mark, uh, it's progressing pretty quick. Mark's, he's, he's moving. Uh, we find ourselves at the story of Jesus returning to his hometown. The story last week that we looked at in the park, uh, Jarius was the synagogue elder. He was part of a town on the lakeside, uh, one of the lakeside towns on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus and his disciples seem to have moved inland uh, and gone to the highlands of Galilee to his hometown of Nazareth. With this change in location comes a little bit of a change in tone in the narrative. In the preceding stories, Jesus displays his lordship over nature, over demons, over uh, disease, and even death. But here, among his own people in Nazareth, he encounters misunderstanding and rejection. And Mark makes a seemingly impossible statement. He says he could do no mighty works here. Previously, the crowds were amazed at Jesus' authority. But Nazareth, it is Jesus who is amazed at their disbelief. The disbelief and the oppression, the uh, opposition at Nazareth sets the stage 
for John's fate in the next passage that we'll look at next week, John the Baptist's fate. Uh, and I think it shifts the tone in this gospel, in Mark's gospel, towards the ultimate fate where we find Jesus uh, before the Sanhedrin and before Pilate and ultimately at the cross. Let's take a look at how this works. Let's, let's jump into this text. Starting in uh, chapter 6, verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. So Jesus comes home uh, as a rabbi. He comes home with his apprentices, his disciples. He doesn't come as the child that grew up there, the carpenter. Uh, he is here with a message to proclaim and with his disciples to mentor. Let's keep going. Verse 2. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his, home, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Catch that. They took offense at Jesus. That word offense in the Greek, in the original language, uh, is this word scandalon. It literally means a stumbling block, or it's the word that we get our word scandal from. Uh, to the people who were the most familiar with Jesus, that watched him grow up, knew him in the first preceding 30 years of his life, uh, this was scandalous. This was uh, too much. Verse 5. And he could do no mighty work there. And then Mark throws in this little caveat. Except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. For us this morning, I want to sit with this for a second. Something about this environment seems to have inhibited the mighty works of Jesus. And that's a bit troublesome. It's a bit troublesome to think of something that Jesus couldn't do. And I've actually, I've heard this passage taught uh, saying there's the one thing that God can't do. And I don't, I don't yeah, we'll get into that, but I don't think that's exactly what's going on here. Some think that this text is teaching that Jesus has to be believed in in order to work his miracles. I think that's problematic. Um, is there anything really that Jesus can't do? I think we just looked at several stories for the past several weeks that we've been walking through this uh, where he has power, like I said, over nature, sickness, demons, even death. I think last time I was up here, we talked about Jesus calming the storm. This, this hurricane of a storm, and it was done in spite of the disciples' faithlessness. It didn't, Jesus didn't need faith to perform a miracle. One way of reading this term, could not, uh, it could be to see it as a statement that Jesus had no ability 
to heal people even if he wanted to in face in the in light of human unbelief most commentators would agree that it was not that Jesus was powerless apart from men's faith but in the absence of faith he could not work miracles in accordance with the purpose of his ministry in other words I'm breaking that down Jesus didn't lack the raw power, the ability to perform miracles. He's God. Right? He, he's, he's God. But he lacked the proper context for the miracles to serve their purpose. We don't see Jesus walking around just doing magic tricks with his, with his power. It's not like he's like writing words in the sky and, and doing crazy things just to draw attention. Uh, obviously, and he's God. He could have done those things, but we don't see that. And why? I think the answer in this text is that Jesus' miracles were not magic tricks. They weren't designed to prove how powerful he was, but they were signs that point to his kingdom. They were to show his redemptive power and how it operates. They point us to new creation and the restoration of all things. His miracles always healed and restored and delivered people in a way that pointed them and allowed them to find him by faith and to have ours, our lives transformed by him. They always point us to him and to his restoration. This is why we looked at this last week. Jesus made the woman with the issue of, issue of blood go public. It wasn't okay for her to receive this miracle in private. He is not just using his miracles to show his greatness. There's an element of that, uh, but that's not it, not, not exclusively. But he is showing his, how his kingdom comes to the world and into our lives. He's showing who he is and how he has come to save us. If Jesus saw people who would not believe, even with miracles, then he wouldn't do them. Why? Because he could not, due to the character of his mission, do a deed of power that would not redeem them to him. So what went wrong? What's going on here? When he went to Nazareth, he came... uh, What went wrong when he came to Nazareth, and what can we learn? That's the question. This is what we have, the takeaway here. What can we learn from what happened in this community? I think the saying is true that familiarity breeds contempt. The hometown people are having trouble reconciling two things. What they think they know about him and these things, this is what they say, these these things that they see and hear him doing. What they know is that Jesus is from humble and familiar origins. He's from low socioeconomic status. He was a simple carpenter. And even they reference him to being just Mary's son rather than Joseph's son. That, that's almost, a, in the culture, that would have been a, a derogatory phrase, almost pointing to maybe an illegitimate birth or, or rumors of an illegitimate birth. 
Jesus was from extremely ordinary and even somewhat socially marginalized roots. So in their minds, there couldn't be, he could not be anyone so special. Yet on the other hand, they hear and they see these things. They, they hear his wisdom and, and they hear of the miracles that have been happening along the Sea of Galilee. They're hearing the rumors and the talk. And these things reveal a figure of enormous power and with great importance. His wisdom and his miracles, they, they burst the banks of what we know human beings are capable of. So here's the problem. There's a discrepancy between what they know, that he's a human being, of very common, humble origins, and what they see and hear. And how do they deal with that? How do they deal with this problem? They ultimately decide to ignore the evidence with their eyes and ears in favor of a preset concept. This is crazy to me that you could be so familiar with Jesus that you completely miss him entirely. They let their predetermined ideas, their prejudices, determine and filter out the evidence. William Lane, in his commentary on the Gospel of Mark, says this. He says, their, their discernment could not penetrate the veil of ordinariness that surrounded him. He was so ordinary, he was just part of our community, they could not get past that to see the extraordinariness that was behind that. For us, the gospel, the good news that we proclaim, our community, it is a very ordinary thing. The gospel is concerned with the everyday stuff of life. In his book, Basic Christianity, John Stott makes an interesting point of how people responded to Jesus during his ministry. He says this, he says, if you read the Bible, you will see that nobody ever met, nobody who ever met Jesus Christ ever had a moderate reaction to him. There were only three reactions to Jesus. They either hated him and wanted to kill him, they were afraid of him and wanted to run away, or they were absolutely smitten with him, and they tried to give their entire lives, their whole lives to him. The gospel, and indeed Christ, is as just as offensive and equally as attractive as it ever has been and in our community. I think all over our community, People have an idea, this pre-worked out idea and concept of who Jesus is and how this thing we call the gospel works. There's a sense of familiarity with what they think they know about Jesus. And often it just does not match up with reality. So let's look at the second half of this passage and see how this all ties together. The way these two stories are paired together seems very intentional to me. Previously, in chapter 3 of Mark, Mark pairs two stories together that are similar. He is uh, Jesus. Where is it? In Mark chapter 3, 
uh, ending in verse 6, Jesus is rejected by the Pharisees, the religious teachers, and the Herodians begin to make plots and plans to destroy him. One of the very next things he does is he appoints the 12 apostles. Here, we see this story in chapter 6 of Jesus rejected, and then he sends out the 12 disciples on their very first solo ministry trip. I think that's very intentional, the, the pairing of these two uh, narratives. There's something to this. I think we can see a pattern of what it means to be a disciple. We follow in the way of the cross. This is what, what the life of discipleship is. We follow in the way of the cross, in the way of our rejected Messiah. To be a disciple is to be an apprentice of Jesus. We are to be with him, become like him, and to do what he did. In our passage today, I think we see that process being worked out in his 12. I would venture to say that most of us would agree that these guys were not ready. Uh, just previously, I mean, he, they were rebuked for their lack of faith. Yet, they are not just eavesdroppers following Jesus around, listening to his teachings. These are apprentices, these are disciples that are, that are learning to be like him. Their success on this first missionary journey that they're sent out on it has nothing to do with their skill, their training, their, their, or their virtue, or their ability. It has nothing to do with that. Jesus didn't, he, he, this, is, this is interesting, he didn't just transfer a body of knowledge or intellectual information to his disciples. He modeled a way of being. He modeled a way of bringing a foretaste of a different social order, and he gave them authority over demons, and he said, Go. As with any apprenticeship, Jesus has been modeling this, what it looks like to do the works of his kingdom. He's been casting out demons, healing people, restoring people into community, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And sometimes he was well-received, other times he was rejected or even ridiculed. And it's in this context that he sends his disciples out to go and do likewise. And we need to read this passage this, the second half here, verse 7 to 13, in context of it's, it's sandwiched between the rejection of his hometown and John the Baptist's rejection. Jesus is not simply giving his followers directions for the mission. Uh, we know that because he sends them out later with different directions. So it's not like these are uh, prescriptive for how we go out on mission. But he is getting them ready to experience rejection, just as he was rejected by his neighbors, his town folk. Verse 11 assumes that this will often happen when he tells them to shake off the dust from their feet. So here's how Jesus prepares his disciples for rejection. First, they were to work in teams. He's, verse 7, they go out two by two. The Christian, you as a disciple of Jesus, you are never meant to be a lone ranger. We are designed to be in fellowship, and we are most effective, most efficient 
for the work of the gospel when we are in community. Now, I get that that is a bit tough right now in the context of the current shelter-in-place order and us not being able to gather in large groups or in this building. Uh, But COVID, this pandemic, it does not remove your need for community. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you need people. You need fellowship, and you need to be in relationships where you are being discipled and you are making disciples. You need it. It's part of what we do as Christians. And I encourage you, I plead with you, find ways to be in community. Connect with each other throughout even this next week. Reach out to someone. Think, even now, begin to think, Uh, If there's somebody you haven't seen or heard from in a few weeks, and reach out. You are not meant to be alone. Second, the disciples were to rely on the hospitality of those to whom they preached. This is fascinating. Bring, this is verse 8. No bread, no money, no extra tunic. I think there's an urgency piece to this, and it, it, I think it, it hyperlinks back to uh, the Exodus. It's actually the very same things that they're told in Exodus. Have your staff ready and your sandals. Um, but I think here, there's a part of this where they were not to stay separated from the people they were trying to reach. A lot of times in that culture, uh, you would bring an extra extra food and extra stuff so you could stay away from the people, so you could have your own uh, separate accommodations. Uh, And he's saying, no, none of that. You go live among the people, even to the point where you're dependent on them. This made them accountable to the people that they were actually bringing the good news to. It meant that the whole ministry was to be above reproach, was to be public and not secretive. The world is already against us as Christians. Let's not give them extra ammunition. It's very interesting that Jesus tells the Christians, he tells his disciples specifically to be transparent and accountable to people, and that's a strategy against, uh, against rejection. Third thing I see here is that they were told to help people by practically addressing their felt needs in a way that would open them up to the gospel truth. This is verse 13. They anointed many sick people. They healed them, cast out demons. They were to come as a, in servant mode rather than a condemnation mode. We are to be Christians, disciples of Jesus. We are to be the greatest servants and most involved in alleviating suffering and hurt. Despite all of these instructions to be kind, open, respectful to non-believers, Jesus still says that the disciples are to shake off the dust when they are rejected. This is a direct and even shocking denunciation. Most commentators, when when they talk about this, they say that this was something that a Jew would do while he was leaving unclean pagan lands and cities. 
This would be a common thing that if a Jewish person was leaving an unclean place, he would shake the dust off of his, his sandal saying that this, the dust from this place is not even worth coming into our community. For the disciples to do this to a Jewish village was to warn that village that it would have, it would have to answer to God in the day of judgment. It would be shocking. It would be like saying, you are as good as a Gentile. What is Jesus saying here? He's telling us that despite coming in servant mode, you're not to be a coward either. We are not to seek to avoid persecution and rejection by compromising the message of repentance. When we look closely at these verses, this, this section, 7 through 13, uh, it is remarkably balanced. On one hand, we're to be servants, living transparently among the people who don't believe, trusting, respecting them, sacrificing for them. And on the other hand, we must have courage to tell the truth about Christ. J.P. Meyer a uh, scholar wrote this piece in the New York Times. He said this. I thought this was interesting. In, the, in a ministry of two or three years, talking about Jesus, he attracted and infuriated his contemporaries, mesmerized and alienated the ancient world, and unleashed a movement that has done the same ever since, and so changed the course of human history forever. I'm reading a book right now called The Destroyer of the Gods. It's about early Christian distinctiveness in a Roman world. And it is amazing how the early church was intentional to set themselves apart and to be different and distinct uh, in their context. The early Christians were the most exclusive sounding thing the pagans had ever heard. Their, their doctrine and their beliefs was extremely exclusive. And yet they were the most inclusive acting group that they had ever seen. Their message was exclusive and their lifestyle was inclusive. They cared for the poor a way that nobody else did. They disregarded the class system. They disregarded race and gender in a lot of ways. They were to come with the message of Jesus dependent on the hospitality of people. They come acting, not just talking. The disciples were, um, uh, came with amazing integrity and simplicity in regards to uh, money and other things. And they were to come exemplifying, I think, Paul's charge to the Col Colossians in Colossians 4, uh, five through six, he says this, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Make the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that, so that they may know how you, so that you may know how to answer each person. Or Peter and his charge in, in 1 Peter 3, 15 through 16. Peter says this, but in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do so with gentleness and respect, 
having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. There's this balance in the Christian life, offensive and attractive. I, I joke a little bit with this, but if you are never offensive, it's possible you're being a coward. If you're always in conflict, you're probably just being obnoxious. There has to be some sort of a balance there. Our lifestyle and our doctrine should challenge people. There should be a, an element of offensiveness, yet there should be an attractiveness in the way that we live our lives, the way that we're in community, the way that we treat each other, the way that we serve the poor and needy that draws people to us to where we can give them the truth of the gospel. I want to end this morning with a quote from, another quote from uh, Michael Goheen. I think I've been thinking about all this week. He says, the gospel is not simply announced as historical facts that can be received for information. The announcement is about the arrival of the new creation. And such is the enormity and momentous significance that this world news, of this world news, that it requires immediate response and action. There is no room for neutrality or indecision. Sadly, I think there is, there is an element of neutrality uh, that is present. My challenge for you this week, I, I always like to leave with a challenge, something to do. Uh, I really want to encourage you to just think through this week, how, how seriously in this season, this pandemic, are we taking our faith? Are we so focused on all the other things that are happening, the issues, the, uh, the debates, that we are neglecting the gospel and the work of the gospel and the life of community? I read some crazy stats this week, new, new stuff out from uh, Barna Group. During the pandemic, 32% of practicing Christians of regular attending American Christians, 32% during the pandemic have not participated uh, in church services. 50% when you look at millennials. Uh, I think we need to think about how seriously we're taking our faith. This is not a time for us to be passive in our faith. This is a time for us to lean in and to get creative and ask for wisdom and how we can connect with people, how we can preach the gospel and display the gospel in real and tangible ways. I really want to encourage you this week, find a few people, hopefully that you could regularly get together with. If it has to be on, on Zoom or some form of digital thing, then I understand. But find some people to get together with to where you can challenge each other in your discipleship. Challenge each other to grow and to step out and to be faithful with the gospel and what's put in front of you. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for the good news. God, I thank you that you are faithful, that you are good. God, I ask that you would help us to learn to walk in your ways, that we would learn to be with you, to become like you, and to do what you 
what you are doing and what you have done. God, I ask that you would lead us and guide us, that you would point us in the direction that we are to go. Father, I ask that you would speak to us and you would have your way. In Jesus' name, amen.